Good morning. Happy New Year. All right. Happy New Year. Good to see all of you. And your eyes, not your your smiling faces. I know they're smiling. I just can't see them. It's good to see you. Uh, I hope you had a good New Year and a good Christmas. Welcome back. If you're back for uh, school, uh, back from the holidays, I hope you enjoyed your time. So Happy New Year. Just a, a few announcements. One is uh, a members forum coming up on January 24th. So mark your calendars. We will let you know the time and the place for that. But on January 24th, We'll have a members forum where we're going to discuss uh, lots of things that are happening at the branch uh, in our life together. So come prepared for that. Uh, one other announcement is, I'm just going to move this, sorry. Um, one other announcement is uh, that we, we've been talking to the Seventh-day Adventist Church about using their building um, for many reasons. Uh, and, and, and that conversation is progressing. So pray for wisdom, pray for favor. If that's where the Lord wants us to, to, to move for, uh, for at least a time, uh, that we would have a more consistent gathering together. So if you have any questions about that, please talk to Davey or to myself or to one of the elders and, uh, pray that the Lord would, would move that forward if he, if he has us in that building. So I, I want to pray one more time together. Would you, would you go to our Heavenly Father in prayer with me? Father, already we have been singing the songs of deliverance that you have rescued us. God, we, we have sung that you're holy. And that is frightening, apart from the fact that the God of angel armies is on our side. That you, uh, the God who reigns forever, is our friend. How can it be? How can this be, that the God of the universe would love us? How could it be that we could be called children of God? And yet we are. We are called children of God. So we are children of God. And Father, we pray as you have given those of us who have repented of our sins and turned to you the spirit of adoption, help us cry out to you, Abba, Father. God, certainly in this last year and in the holidays and, and just in our lives in general, there are times where we feel like orphans. Remind us of the promise that Jesus made that I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come for you. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to remind us that we are not alone, that you abide with us, that you dwell with us, that you will never leave us and never forsake us. We thank you for this good gospel news that we get to hear about, think about, read about, sing about. And we pray that you would set our hearts on fire as we think about your, your kindness to us in Jesus Christ, that it would remind us not only of your love for us, but your love for others, and that it, you would help us take it out to those who don't know. Father, we thank you even for the opportunity to meet together in this place. It's a kindness of you. We thank you for Christ Central, who usually meets here and is meeting at another place. We pray that you give them favor. We thank you for their generosity. It reminds us of how generous you are. We pray that you would help them as they preach the gospel to 
receive the good news with gladness that you would use them in this city for kingdom purposes, for spreading the gospel, for discipling the nations. God, use them, we pray. And be with them. Remind them of your love for them this morning. God, we thank you for not just those in Corvallis that are preaching the gospel. We also thank you for those who are up and down the I-5 corridor who are like-minded churches as ours. We thank you for Living Water Church and their pastor, Dave Leandre, and their elders. We pray for the gospel to be clear in that church, for sinners to turn and be converted. And we pray for a revival among the people there in Vancouver, that you would do your work for your glory there. Father, as you meet with these people, please do not pass over us. We ask you by your spirit to meet with us, to open our minds and hearts to your word, and to be changed into the image and likeness of your dear son, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Father, we pray that our hearts would be made anew by this news. You would make us the kinds of people that are big-hearted and broad-minded and and inclusive of those who who call on your name and do works in your name. We pray that you uh, would have your way with us, that you would show us Christ. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, and the one who loves us. In Christ's name, amen. So we are in Mark 9. We're making our way slowly through the book of Mark. Sometimes it probably feels too slow. And yet uh, each week I'm impressed with what the Lord has in his word for us. So Mark chapter 9, if you're not there, we're just going to take a short passage this morning. Uh, We're going to take Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 41. And just to reorient us to where we've been in the Gospel of Mark, just the, the recent history, let's uh, set the stage. In chapter 9, in the presence of Moses and Elijah and Peter, James, and John, Jesus is transfigured and shows his glory on the mountain. And God the Father spoke from the cloud, giving his approval to Jesus as the son of his love. He approved of the work that he was doing. As they came down the mountain, the other disciples were waiting. They are arguing with the scribes because uh, they had not been able to cast out a demon. Jesus had given them authority to cast out demons, and they weren't able to do it. They're arguing with the scribes about this. And for the second time in response to this, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. That he was going to suffer, to die, and to rise again. And again, his disciples did not understand. Have you ever been there? And the proof that they didn't understand was that they were arguing on the way to Capernaum. It says in in the passage before our passage. And they, that's the disciples of Jesus, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? A great question. But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with with one another about who was the greatest. 
They're like Muhammad Ali. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And Jesus says, what were you discussing on the way? And they were ashamed because they were arguing about who was the greatest. For real? They were arguing about who was the greatest after they had seen Jesus transfigured on the mountain. Don't, don't you want Peter, James, and John to interrupt, to speak up, and say, wait a minute, guys, we know who the greatest is, and it's not us. It's, we saw him transfigured. We're not even a close second. We saw who the greatest was on the mountain, but they didn't say that. In fact, it seems that they were the ones probably stirring up the argument. In Mark 10, 40, 35, excuse me, it says, and James and John... The sons of Zebedee came to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, what do you, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit on your right hand and on your left in your glory. And the disciples, and particularly James and John, they're nicknamed the sons of thunder, have not yet understood the place of humility in the kingdom of God. Greatness, and Davy preached to us the last time we were in Mark, this passage, greatness in God's kingdom, in his economy, is humility and servitude. You want to be great in Christ's kingdom, you want a place in his kingdom, become the least of all. One of the reasons the disciples don't understand it, and sometimes one of the reasons we don't understand it, is because we do not understand that we are at war. We don't have a wartime mentality. The disciples are acting like it's time to order the kingdom. Like Jesus is here, he is going to set up his kingdom, and now it's time to order who's in charge. But it's not time for that yet. Like, the king is here, to set up the kingdom, and yet there's time for something else. In one, in one sense, he's here, and the king will reign forever. However, there is still a battle to be won. It's the battle for our hearts and souls. Jesus will win the battle through humility on a bloody cross, not through government takeover. And the disciples, and we need to know that. The disciples need to know. And we need to know that the kingdom greatness is not what we think it is. Greatness in God's kingdom is humility. And he gives us an example, which is peculiar uh, to children, a peculiar quality in children. And that is humility. You might be thinking, I have kids. I don't see humility in my kids. No, it's this, it's this dependence on their parents, someone else. For everything. That's the quality that Jesus is telling us is kingdom greatness. Who in utter dependence, children have no place in society but what is given to them. And Jesus says, receive the little children so they come to me. So the Spirit of God explains to us in verses 33 through 37, kingdom greatness is humility and servitude. If anyone would be first of all, he must be least of all. And then in our passage this morning, if anyone would be first of all, he must be last of all. Also, he must have a, a kingdom ministry mindset if he's going to be great. A certain kingdom ministry mindset. 
And that is, he must be, you must be, I must be, we must be, she must be, big-hearted, broad-minded. You must have a big-hearted, broad-minded inclusivity of those doing kingdom work in Jesus' name. This is the second mark of humility. Big-hearted, broad-minded, inclusivity of those doing kingdom work in Jesus' name. So friends, this is a wartime mentality. We are, we are at war together with, not against those that are for Jesus. So I want to be clear up front, this big-hearted, broad-minded inclusivity does not mean certain things, right? Inclusivity is like, a, it's, a, it's a catchphrase, isn't it? That you're supposed to be, we're supposed to think that everything, all the time, is supposed to be included, and we're supposed to be tolerant of. I just want to give, I want to nuance this in five ways, okay, before we get to the rest of the passage. What I don't mean by a big-hearted, broad-minded inclusivity is that a kind of universalism where everyone is going to be saved regardless of what they believe. Jesus said that, excuse me, the way he was, the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him. There's a time for an exclusiveness. This is it. Jesus is the only way to the Father. So I, I don't mean universalism. Secondly, I don't mean we should tolerate and be inclusive in a worldly way. What is a worldly inclusivity? Worldly inclusivity says that we must accept as truth every individual's religion or moral claim on their own terms. Uh, this is, I'm not saying that. We can reject that false claim while accepting people as created in God's image, but we do not have to accept the claim as truth. I don't mean universalism. I don't mean worldly inclusivity. I mean a biblical inclusivity that accepts people who name Jesus and do work in his name, but are not of our tribe. People who are maybe not Southern Baptist, maybe not Reformed, maybe broader evangelical, but they're doing work in Jesus' name, they're not our tribe. Jesus is telling disciples, and I believe he's telling us, to have a big-hearted, broad-minded inclusivity. This is like Jesus. Number four, there are some people who claim Jesus but should not be included as Christians because they preach a false gospel. Uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the New Apostolic Reformation, and those who preach a hard-line prosperity gospel. We are saying, I am not saying we need to be tolerant of those views, even though we should be tolerant of those people. And lastly, historic Christianity is exclusive and inclusive in all the best ways. Have you ever read Revelation? Anyone may come. And, and around the throne room of heaven, around the, the Lamb, is worshiping people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Worshiping Jesus together. Anyone may come. And lots of people have come and will come and will be included. It's the best kind of inclusivity. But Jesus, the gospel also is inclusive in that people are there not based on their works, but in, on Jesus' works. And faith in those works. So 
So Jesus is including all kinds of people based on his work, not based on what we do. But he's exclusive in that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. So, with all of these caveats in mind, the text gives us one attitude to guard against and, and four grounds, four reasons for being big-hearted, broad-minded, inclusive as a mark of kingdom greatness. Okay, so one attitude to guard against. A small-minded, cliquish mentality that demands more simplicity, similarity than Jesus does. We see this in, in verse 38. Notice, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus, the first thing we see from this passage is something we need to guard against is a a small-minded, cliquish mentality that demands more similarity than Jesus does. So the the disciples see this man doing a, a work. Jesus calls a mighty work in his name. He's casting out demons. And they heard that he was doing it in Jesus' name. But they decided, the deciding factor for them was that whether or not they were, that this man was following them. We will include you if you follow us. If you don't follow us, you're out. See, they were seeing Jesus' work, N.T. Wright says, as a private and privileged operation, instead of seeing it as an event that is moving swiftly towards a showdown. The battle lines are being drawn, friends, during this time. And Jesus is, saying, Jesus is not saying, don't nuance it. He's saying, don't stop this, man. He's for us if he's not against us. This attitude to guard against is a small-minded clickishness that says they can only do kingdom work if they do it exactly like us. And we want to guard against that. That's not a wartime mentality, friends. Beloved, a wartime mentality says if they are not against us, they're for us. Praise God, I believe the branch has done a good job of avoiding this attitude. But among theologically serious individuals who believe that theological positions have consequences, we must guard against this mentality. We we have to set our minds against it. How how can we do that? There are some ways, I believe, uh, just a a few practical suggestions, a a way to guard against a small-minded clickishness. One is to practice thankfulness in your prayer life. Thankfulness breeds humility. And this is the basis of kingdom greatness. I recently, um, I recently have been convicted because brothers and sisters have told me, not in these words, but basically what I've taken from, from their words is I am not thankful enough. I do not do a good enough job of telling the stories of God's grace among us. 
That, that's convicting. But it's also just a reminder, part of it is because we're not humble. I'm not humble. A, a, a thankfulness breeds humility. And humility is a mark of kingdom greatness. If, you have a, if you're wondering where to start, start thanking God for your conversion. Do you know, friend, that you were once in the kingdom of darkness? And now God has brought you out and put you into the kingdom of his dear son, the son of his love. There's so much to be thankful for there. He has rescued you. Tell him, you know that you would be an enemy if it wasn't for his grace. Now you're seated around his table. Next thing I would suggest is to pray for other ministries and churches to have success as they preach the gospel. That's why we try to do that in our pastoral prayers, is to pray for the success of the gospel because the kingdom is bigger than the branch. The kingdom is bigger than our tribe. And, and, and God is using people that aren't exactly like us. Pray for other ministries and churches. The next thing I would say is do not assume others' theological positions. Be thankful, intercede for churches, don't assume others' theological positions. Uh, I think this past year uh, proved a, a good illustration of this as the race uh, issue came up among, in, in our country and around the world. Uh, it's a perfect illustration of let's not assume that because someone is concerned about racial justice, or wants policies put in place to govern more justly, we must not assume that they're cultural Marxists or buy into critical theory. We have to give each other the benefit of the doubt and talk about it. Don't assume because someone's concerned, uh, don't assume, excuse me, others' theological positions. The last thing I would say is do not presume that because people don't follow us that they don't follow Christ. The small-minded clickishness is an attitude to avoid, brothers and sisters. This will adorn the gospel that we preach. It, it, will, it will make it look as good as it is. So that's an attitude to avoid. And then there are four grounds quickly for a, a big-hearted, broad-minded inclusivity, which is the mark of kingdom greatness and a wartime mentality. Four, four, four grounds, four reasons. First, notice in verse 39. Did you notice the juxtaposition? Verse 38, G John said. Verse 39, Jesus said. The first reason that we are supposed to have this kind of inclusive mindset is because Jesus said. God said, as opposed to man said. Even the disciples of Jesus who were with him on this earth and, and walked among him, with him, and, and among us on this earth. Their words do not pray, take precedence over Jesus' words. So why did Jesus say this? Why did Jesus say, do not stop him? It reminds us of Numbers chapter 11. Do you remember that story? In verse 24, it says, So Moses went out and told the people of, of the words of the Lord. Remember, Moses is the greatest prophet that Israel has known, God's people has known. And he's their leader. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. 
Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not, know, they did not continue doing it. Now, two men remained in the camp, and one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to, to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And the young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Friends, now a greater than Moses, a greater prophet than Moses is here. And he says, do not stop this one who's doing a mighty work in my name. So the first reason to have this sort of inclusivity is because Jesus said to He's a greater prophet than Moses is. The second ground for a big-hearted, broad-minded inclusivity is that the truth will out. Verse, verse 39, uh, Jesus, Jesus says, Do not stop him, for no one doing a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward speak evil of me. How do, how do we know whether someone is doing what they are doing for Jesus or not? There's lots of religious hucksters out there, aren't there? And we don't know exactly why they're doing things or, or, or if they're for us or against us. We don't know. But we can observe certain actions, things about people's actions, but we still don't know. Are they doing mighty works like casting out demons and are they doing it in the name of Jesus? Those are the things we can observe. The master tells the disciples that in this instance, the time for sorting out comes later. It, if you are so worried about um, dividing it up and sorting it out, Jesus is saying, now is not the time. Not the time for his disciples. There is a time for that, but it's not right now. Because there's a real war going on. It's going on right now. The devil and his minions are doing serious damage to non-believers. And the religious people of that day. They even seem, the religious people seem to be on Satan's side and not on Jesus' side. So, if this man is really casting out demons, and he's really doing it in Jesus' name, leave him alone. Time for sorting out will be later. And it, it seems like the, fair, the uh, disciples would have got this because of what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Do you remember when the scribes and Pharisees condemned Jesus and said, you are doing the, this work, you're casting out demons in the power of the prince of demons, and you're doing this by Beelzebul. And Jesus says, asked them a simple question, how can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, will bind the strong man Satan and he will do it through the cross. So for now, if someone's casting out demons or doing a mighty work, as Jesus says, in my name, leave him alone. There are two sides, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. 
If this man was a part of the kingdom of darkness, would he be really casting out demons in Jesus' name? It's just a question we have to ask. You say, well, maybe he wasn't really doing it. Maybe it's a trick. Maybe it's a sleight of hand. Friends, the truth will out. As Lancelot said. The truth will out. There's proof of this in Acts 19. Do you remember the sons of Sceva who tried to do the very same thing? Seven sons of Sceva, they go in Jesus' name, the one Paul preaches, and they try to cast out demons. And they say, by Jesus, we adjure you by Jesus to come out of this man. And you remember what the demons say to him, to these seven sons? Paul we know, Jesus we know, but who are you? And they, they jumped on them and they abused them. Jesus we know and Paul we recognize, but who are you? The truth will out. It's not always our job to sort it out. So we should strive for a broad-minded inclusivity. Number one, because Jesus said. Number two, because the truth will out. Number three, because the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus uses language of battle lines here. One of the ways we know who is on our side of the battle is that they're not killing our guys. They're fighting with us. They're killing the bad guys. They're fighting the enemy. They're wearing our colors. You know, one commentator says, uh, Jesus is not at this point forcing anyone's hand for a decision. And, he, and fortunately so, for even the disciples are ignorant and ambivalent, aren't they? It's not yet the hour for a final decision, which would be premature. Think of Romans 14, 4. Who are you to pass judgment on another man's servant? It's before his master, whether he, he rises or falls. It's only at the cross will the evidence be present for a full verdict. And at that time, those who are not for Jesus will be against him. Battle lines are being drawn already, friends. And Jesus says, leave this one alone. For the present, a season of grace precedes the hour of judgment. If they're not on the other team, we need to treat them like they're on ours. The one who is not against us is for us. We can just think about this in our own context of evangelicalism. Maybe even the Southern Baptist Convention. It's a broad tent, isn't it? It has someone like Al Mohler and someone like Stephen Furtick under the tent. And yet, one of those men, Al Mohler and Stephen Furtick, one of those men, namely Stephen Furtick, is, is one that borders on, if not preaches, heresy, and another one, even though you may not agree with him on many things, uh, he's a man that stands for truth. And whether you like him or not, he's one of ours. He's on our team. And he, and he just doesn't have to be in the Southern Baptist Convention, but this broaden it out in evangelicalism or, or other things. We, we need discernment. We need that theological triage that we talked about before. We, we need to be ordering theology and, and, and being exclusive at some points. But friends, we also need a broad-minded inclusivity among us that will adorn the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus commanded it. The truth will out. The one who is not against us is for us. And lastly, 
Jesus will reward both mighty and small works done in his name. Here's the last reason, the last ground, that we should have a big-hearted, broad-minded inclusivity, that Jesus will reward both mighty and small works done in his name. He says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Other manuscripts say, if anyone gives you a cup of cold water in my name. And this seems to be uh, a, a, a major um, phrase in, in interpreting this passage. It's done in my name. People who do things in my name are not going to be able to speak evil of me. The truth will out. Doing Jesus' works did not win any favors in that culture. The religious culture did not like Jesus. The political culture saw him as a threat. So doing a a work, even like a small work, like giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name because you're a disciple of Jesus, could have been an act of treachery. Jesus saying, when you do that, you will get rewarded. It was kind of like giving aid to Chinese Christians who are defying the government orders not to meet. Kind of like that. Jesus says, this person will not lose their reward. What's the reward? I have no clue. No idea. Jesus doesn't say, does he? There is some reward for, from God for doing this. And Jesus says, no act, whether mighty or small, will go unrewarded by God. Done in his name. So friends, as we conclude, true kingdom greatness is humility. Receive children. Receive those who are on our side of the battle line. We, the battle lines are drawn, friends. Let's, let's fight against the one, the evil one, who is trying to harm with the good news of the gospel. Friends, all of this is pointing to a broad-minded, big-hearted God who includes sinners like you and me who went over the battle line, who went into enemy territory, who was crucified on enemy grounds for us. He was your substitute. He was my substitute. He died for your sins and my sins. And he rose again from the dead. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ is alive. And this is the whole reason he can can take enemies and make them sons and daughters. He can seat them around his table. Once an enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. This is the kind of attitude he wants to work in us because this is the kind of attitude God has himself for us. May he create in us what he demands of us. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you. Unless you included us, we would certainly be excluded. And it pains our hearts 
to know that there are those of our friends and our family that aren't yet included in your family. God, and we ask, we ask with faith that you would save them, that you would rescue them, bring them into this inclusiveness because you excluded your son on our behalf. You could include us and them. God, we pray that as you would give us wisdom as we sort through what, what are the doctrines we need to stand up for and, and what are the doctrines we should divide for, what are the doctrines we should, we should die for, and, and, and what are the doctrines that we should, we should debate for and, and decide for. God, we need wisdom in all of this. God, help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to have a prayer of confession.